my mom barely associates with her anymore. And my grandma asked her, why don't you ever come see me anymore on my side of the house? And my mom's response was, why did you stay married to a pedophile? Hi there. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and any and all abuse. Today, I'm joined by Emmy. Emmy is a mom, a podcaster, writer, wedding planner, cat lover, and a survivor of family sexual abuse. Her healing journey led her to starting her own podcast, Motherful, Powerful Moms, Powerful Topics. Her co-host is her best friend, and together, they tackle the many difficult social and mental health issues that have affected their lives and made them who they are. And now it's time for... Trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following. Sexual assault, rape, trauma, child abuse, pedophilia, incest, PTSD, eating disorders, pregnancy, and abortion. Emmy wrote a letter for Season 3's Letters for the Fire Project. She wrote a letter to her abusive grandfather, and I'm going to begin today's episode by sharing that letter again now. Please check in with yourself, and make sure you're all right to continue. Pap, for all of my life, I've had two fears. The first being that the family would find out what you did to me, and it would tear the family apart which it did. The second was ever confronting you about what you did. My brain has protected me from remembering most of what you did to me, but I remember parts. This is problematic because not only did I erase the bad memories, it also erased all of the good ones too. It has left me with a lot of unanswered questions. I've dreamt a lot about you dying, envisioned it over and over in my head. I thought if you were dead, then I could finally sigh a breath of freedom and start to heal from what you did. But the farther that I get along in my healing journey, the more that I realize that you don't deserve to die without knowing how I feel and all the pain that you caused me. I've felt a lot of different emotions about what you did. I felt angry and confused, thinking, why me? But the more I heal, the more that I realize that these questions don't matter. What matters is healing myself and using my experiences to help other people who have gone through the same things that I have. I don't hate you. I don't harbor those types of feelings in my body. I do hate what you did to me. I think you're a monster. I don't want your apologies or explanations because they don't fucking matter. What fucking matters is that you put fucking hands on me and who knows how many other kids. I've spent 20 years dealing with the repercussions of your actions. 20 fucking years. I hope you go straight to hell when you die, if that exists. And remember that when you do die, 
I will still be here trying to heal from what you did to me. It took me a lot of courage to write this to you, and I am here by releasing myself from you. You are not my family. You are not my grandfather. You are just the man who molested me. I'm done. Emily. Are you okay? Loaded question. I'm sure you get that answer a lot. I would say on a personal level, I'm doing pretty great. There's a lot of positives going on in my life right now from my career to my social life. And I'm having a really great time right now with where I'm living. I just moved to Pittsburgh. So I'm having a great time exploring the city and making new friends and all of that. But it's a double-edged sword. As much as I'm okay and thriving in my personal life, I know on the grand scheme of things, whenever I start to think about the world issues, I'm like, no, I'm not okay. Like, let's not. Like, it's two very different sides of the coin. But if I let myself live in the realm of being overly concerned with big world issues all the time, I'm not going to be okay. Well said. And I very much relate. Like, I'll have days where I just fall into, like, a world at large black hole. And yesterday was one of those days. And it was just very much like, I am not okay. And you have to keep shifting focus back to your immediate situation. Otherwise, like, yeah, it's it's a nightmare. Everything's on fire. It's very upsetting. I feel you. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it's it's easy to say that everything is fine and like turn your, your back to what is going on in the real world. But I know that I can say that and I have discussions with coworkers. I know that I can say that coming from a place of privilege because I'm not faced with those issues every day like some people are. Yeah. So it is. It, yeah. That's. No, it's it's very true. It's a frustrating place to be in. To be, yeah, I'm doing great, but the world is not. Yeah, and certainly, like if you're if you're not a person that's happy to to just ignore it indefinitely, yeah. it's a it's a balancing act of like engage, step back, engage, step back, like you know, like self care versus engagement, because um, you can't you can't just keep engaging and keep pouring yourself and and your energy into it. Otherwise, you will lose your mind. Yeah, I sort of feel bad for people that are like major empaths that don't have the ability to step back and are constantly living in that world issue bubble that in the large grand scheme of things, they're not going to be able to change by themselves, but they have to live with that every single day, almost all the time. Yeah. God, well, I was was just thinking of it yesterday and it was uh, The Secret Life of Bees. Did you ever read or see that one? Nope. There's this there's this character that is like one of those people that that can't shake things off that everything uh, impacts her very strongly and she anytime she hears something just in passing something sad happened or a newspaper article or something like that she completely falls apart and the the way that the family has taught her to deal with it is she has like a section of a stone wall in back and she will write out the sad thing that happened and she'll roll it up into a little piece of paper and she'll stick it in the stone wall. And so she has this stone wall just filled with human tragedy uh, as she attempts to cope with it. And, and that's her way of like setting it down, putting it somewhere and then trying to step back. But I was thinking very strongly about that character the other day. 
I wonder if that actually works for her because I feel like if you're in that mindset, it would be a coping mechanism, but it's still going to be in the back of your brain. Like you can't just set it on fire and forget about it, even if you wrote it down. I don't want to spoil the book or the movie for anybody, but ultimately it's not enough for that character. Yeah. Um, I can relate though, because if I have festering thoughts and I learned this a little bit in therapy when I used to go is that if I have festering thoughts, I keep rethinking the same thing over and over again, that if I write it down, what I'm thinking, it will release that a little bit that I'm not constantly thinking over in a loop. So for me, that does sort of work at some points. What is a compliment that you've received that you've never forgotten? I was working when I lived in North Carolina with a a woman that was probably about 10 years older than I was. And she had fallen on a little bit of a hard time where she told me her story that she had gotten into a DUI and she had lost her license and wasn't able to drive. And she had asked me for rides to work because we didn't live terribly far away from each other. And I was like, yeah, sure. That's no problem. And she was telling me her story and what was going on. And I just, you know, accepted it at face value. I'm not a judgmental person. And that was the compliment. And she said, you're one of the least judgmental people that I have ever met given my story to. What is your favorite color or color combination? And what do you associate with it? So my favorite color across the board is purple, more of a like a deep midnight purple. And Mm -hmm. I associate it with kind of a mysterious aspect In the terms of when I became a mom, I lost a lot of what I considered my freedoms that I could choose to do what I wanted. And purple, I associate with the things that I get to do outside of being a mom and outside of being a wife that are kind of just for me. And I don't have to share that with people. If I had to summon you in a ritual, what five things would I need to place as offerings at each point of the pentacle on the floor? So it was really hard not to make all five things food related because I'm such a foodie and I'm like, I love this and I love this and I love this, but I did narrow it down to just two food items. The first being potatoes. Love potatoes. You place a Mm. potato in any shape, French fries, mashed potatoes, twice baked potatoes. I will be there for the potatoes. The second food item is cheesecake. Could be with pretty much any toppings, sweet, savory, salty, caramel, like any cheesecake plain, I'll be there for cheesecake. The next would be tiny notebooks that I can carry with me in a purse or a backpack that I can just write whenever I need to and not have to worry about lugging a huge thing around with me. The next would be cats, preferably my cat who is a 17-year-old tuxedo, but any cat will do, really. Any cat, just bring them all. And then the last one is a warm, snuggly blanket. I love it. I love it. And three essentials to your self-care. The first one is going to be my most basic answer, which is bubble baths. I'm a sucker for a bubble bath. The next is going on walks alone in the woods i love being able to be in nature and what i will do is i'll put one headphone in with like soothing piano-esque type music and the other i leave open to one listen for predators and people who might kill me two to listen to the sounds of nature and a lot of the times what i'll do i i 
my favorite walk that I've gone on is it was a particularly very cold and windy day. I was bundled up in like eight layers, but I was still going on that walk. And I loved it because I didn't tell anyone where I was going. My uh, child was with her grandparents and my husband was at work and I just got in the car and I drove to a patch of woods and it was windy. So I was letting the woods kind of guide me to which way and direction I was going And if I was like, should I keep going? I keep going with the direction of the wind. And if the wind pushed back against me, I was like, okay, it's time to turn around. And my other thing that I love about these walks is that I'll find a trinket, like a rock or an acorn cap, anything that I kind of speaks to me. And I'll pick that up and take it with me for the remainder of my walk. And when I get home, I put it on my altar. I'm a, a pagan, so I have an altar. I put it on my altar. And the next time that I go out, I take that trinket with me and I return it to nature and I find a new item. Oh, nice. Yeah. I love that practice. That's awesome. Yeah. And then my last thing for my self-care essential is binging any sort of sitcom TV show like Friends, The Office, not a sitcom, but I'm rewatching Charmed right now. So... I'm a, I work full time. I have my own business. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. So I don't get a lot of those as it is. If I get an hour a week of just my own TV time, like that is great to me. Nice. I never had the opportunity to like actually watch Charmed, but I know it's a classic. It was just never on when I was younger. I'm right there with you. I'm like binge watching television is a big part of my self care too. Which comes back to my snuggly blanket comment for one of the things that can summon me. I just love laying on the couch, being snuggled in. One day last week, I had a just an Emmy day just for me. And I spent about, I would say, six or seven hours just on my couch. And three of those I've napped for. Like, I fell asleep in the middle of it. But it was a great time. And I just love being able to watch whatever I wanted to. And I let my shows compile that I was currently trying to watch. And I just watched them all straight through. That's awesome. Yeah, and baths, big relatable to me too. I um like bath time is a big self-care for me. I'll have like a marathon bath day where I'll either have like my phone or something that I'm reading and like I will be in there for an amount of time that my partner finds like frankly almost concerning because yeah. I'll just sit in there and I'll just keep like emptying out half the tub and refilling it with hot water and just like just prune it up in there and just like become waterlogged and do not care. It's just, it's so important and so soothing and it is a good for my health to get the temperature just right. Like half the time I make it too hot. And so I'm half out of the bathtub, letting my air, like like, like <laughs> the air to cool down. And then like, sometimes I'll be watching a movie, like a full two hour movie in the bath and, Sometimes I like to do meditations when I'm in the bath and light my candles off of my altar. I have a mobile altar, so I just carry it with me wherever I need to go. And Oh, groovy. Yeah. I've, I've never had a mobile altar. I've never even considered that as an option. That's very cool. Tier 3 members on Patreon just got to see Emmy's mobile altar, and it was awesome. If you're ready uh, and if you're comfortable, I would love to talk about your story. What happens? There is really no clear start point of when my abuse happened, just because I I believe that I was around four or five, probably, but I have no memory of 
when it started and I barely have a memory of it happening or it ending. That is a, a part of what happened is I have a very bad trauma brain from it that I don't remember a lot of the details. I talk about it a lot on my podcast uh, that I don't remember the abuse actually happening a lot of it. So sometimes it makes me feel a little crazy. Like, did this actually happen? But the flicks of memories that I do have, I'm like, yep, that happened. And I just, my brain is fucked up and I can't remember the rest of it. My abuser was my grandfather who lived in the house with us. My parents had a house that they had bought when they got married. And my grandpa actually got sick with cancer. And so they added on to their house to build kind of like this mega house. It was two houses smushed together. It had seven bedrooms, two kitchens, like four bathrooms. Like it was two houses that were just connected. And so unfortunately it was very easy for him to have access to me for what he decided to do. And I don't, know really how long it had happened for the way that it happened for so long was because he was manipulative in the aspect of I remember him specifically saying this that this is how grandfathers love their granddaughters and so the things that he was doing I thought was just what every grandfather did and he made it to be our secret that I had an older sister who was only a couple years older than me that I had told no one at all. The really only strong memory that I have of it happening was the very last time or what I perceived to be the last time, because there are things that I found out that I don't know correlate to was this the actual last time or is it just what I think is the last time? But the last time that it happened I knew something was wrong. Like I knew that this wasn't right and this is not something that should be happening. And I don't know like how much detail I'm allowed to, to give. Whatever you feel comfortable sharing is, is welcome and has the potential to help people. So you are not being censored in any way. Okay. So the, the, after it was over, he made the statement to me, Oh, let me go check for hair, meaning hair in my, pubic region. And I had said no, like that was after that time that felt weird that it didn't felt right. I had said no. Was he checking for, for his hair that he might've left or if you, okay. Yes. And in that, that last time that I remember, it was sort of like an out of body experience. So I was kind of like overseeing what happened. It wasn't like I was actually in my body there but I said no. And that is what I perceived to be the last time that it happened. I don't remember it ever coming up again. Mm-hmm. And if it correlates to the time that I found out things happened later, I would have been around eight. So if it had started happening when I was potentially four or five, to know that it went on for so long. And no one had any idea because on the outside, it looked like he was just a loving grandfather. He took me and my sister and my cousin, who we were all really close, he took us to the movies and he took us to get ice cream. He took us to get lunch. And this was just on the outside. He's a great grandfather. He's spending all this time with his grandchildren. That was really hard growing up and figuring out puzzle pieces of what happened just to know that it it was so long and no one 
had any idea and no one well I found out that people had ideas but no one did anything to stop it or to question it that was the abuse part of it and then I didn't start telling people and I didn't start talking about that if it started stopped happening at eight I didn't start opening up about it to even my closest friends until I was probably about 15 or 16 it was kind of in my brain is that I don't remember even thinking about it it was just so far in my the back of my head that the first time that I can remember it re-coming back up was when I was reading a book that it had happened to a, the main character in the book that she was abused by someone. And I was like, oh, wait, that happened to me. And from the time I was 16 to probably 20, I could count on one hand the amount of people that I had told, just closest friends and people that I trusted that even the thought, like I had a a boyfriend that I was very serious about in high school that I told, and he was like, oh, I'm going to confront your pap. And I'm going to, cause he, he still lives in my house that I grew up in with my grandma, with my parents. And he was like, I'm going to confront him. And I was like, oh no, you could not do that. I was terrified of anyone in my family finding out and anyone knowing what had actually happened because I wasn't ready to face those truths yet. What were you afraid of at that time? Outside, I wasn't afraid that there would be any retaliation from him. Like he never made, he wasn't threatening. He wasn't like, oh, I'll kill your family or anything like this, or I'll kill you or anything like that. He was always, Mm -hmm. he was always kind, unfortunately, which is kind of fucked up because he was a good grandpa in quotations. But I had a pretty what I thought was a good childhood and a good family up until that point. And I thought, and unfortunately it did come true that when my family found out, I was afraid that it was going to ruin my family and I wasn't going to have anything ever be the same again. And I didn't want to be the one carrying that burden. I did not, even though it was him, he was the one that abused me. I didn't be the one to be the one that ruined our family. And it did, unfortunately. When I got to college, I started doing a little bit of healing work, but I still wasn't, wasn't there to nearly where I am now. And my very first time I was doing a, I was a creative writing minor and I was doing a lot of writing about it. And a lot of, it was just surface level writing because I realize that now, but a lot of writing about it. And my very first, I love slam poetry. It's, I love it. Just people being so passionate about their, what they're talking about. One of our assignments we got extra credit for was going to an open mic night at a coffee house. And I decided to perform one of my slam poems that I had wrote about my pap. And this was the first time that I had publicly told anyone like people that I didn't even know at all and know their names. They were random strangers from my college and from the community. And I shared the poem and immediately after I was done, I was shaking and I ran out of there crying because that was my first experience with telling a large group of people. Yeah. And from there it kind of, after college, I did a lot of work. I did a lot of writing. I shoved that back into a box and I, I left where I had grown up. I decided to make the decision to move to North Carolina with my now husband. And I realized that all this time I was running from having to deal with the, what had happened in healing. I was running from the healing process. I didn't want to deal with it. 
So we had our daughter down in North Carolina. And when she was about two, I decided that it was time for us to move back to where we grew up, Pennsylvania, so that she could get to know her grandparents and her family a little more. Because up until this point, she was only getting to see them like three to four times a year because we were 10 hours away from our family. And that was just a hard, hard commute. Like you can't do that all that often. And I kind of fell into a little bit of a nostalgia trap where I was like, oh, my family's, we're going to get to hang out with them. And it's are my old friends from college and my old friends from high school. And we're going to have a great old time. And Unfortunately, when I moved back and we made that decision, it was not at all what I had remembered or what I had expected it because I had grown and I had changed. And I realized a lot of what happened to me as a, as a kid growing up was toxic and I had a toxic family. And we stayed with my parents for a couple months in the house that I was abused in just for financial reasons until we could get our own place And I started to have triggering, like, not flashbacks, but, like, I would be kissing my husband and I would open my eyes and it would be my pap. And so little things like that. And I started to started to ask a couple more questions. And what I did forget to mention is when I was in college, I did choose to tell one of my family members, my one of my cousins that I was really close to growing up, he was always around us and his grand, our grandfathers, we shared a grandfather. And I have a whole podcast episode that I talked to him about I what happened in the aftermath of all that. Because for him, that was his hero. Our pap was in the Vietnam War. He was a war hero and he wanted to be like him. And when I shattered that and I told him what happened I guess I skipped a couple parts here but when I told him what happened that's when the ball really started getting rolling for the rest of my family finding out because he told his dad who then told my mom and right before my daughter was born I did choose to tell my parents just because my daughter was going to be spending time at their house And I did not, I specifically went into the conversation saying, I do not want what happened to me to happen to my daughter. He's still in that house. And I didn't want that to ever be a possibility or a risk. Yeah. And when I told my parents when we were in North Carolina, my mom started crying because she already knew. And I wasn't the one that got to tell her that. But she already knew and she was waiting for me to be comfortable bringing it up. So I do appreciate that. But at the same time, it was a little bit hard for me to not be the one to have told them because I didn't want to tell them. I didn't want to, I didn't want to ever tell them. And unfortunately, when I had my daughter, I had to. Yeah. And so then when we came back up to Pennsylvania and we're staying in their house, I started asking questions because at that point, everyone in my family knew. And I wasn't afraid to talk about that anymore because they already knew. So what's the worst that could happen? But I talked to my grandma who is or was one of my favorite people. And I had so much, she was a set, like she helped raise me. She grew up with me. She drove me to school. She did all like, she was a very involved grandma. And I found out that she knew. She knew that her husband from very early in their marriage, was a a pedophile. 
She, before her kids were born, before I was born, she knew. And when he was in the the military, he was institutionalized for having inappropriate relations with children in the military. And he was released from the hospital. And the doctors told my grandma, he's cured. He's all better. He was not all better. Yeah. He abused other family members before me that I've never talked to because I'm not that close to the other family members. But there were a handful, more than one person that this has happened to in my family and nothing was done. Yeah. No one. And these other family members were 10, 15 years older than me. And I don't blame them for not feeling comfortable, I guess. But there was more than one. And they weren't ready. That's fine. But there was more than one. And they knew that I was in this house with this man. And no one, no one did anything to protect me. Or my sister, who she claims that nothing happened to her and my cousin never happened anything to him. And I don't know why. Like, my sister was older than me. Why was I the one? But that's, that's, anyways, that's a here or there thing. But she knew. And she even said one time that she had walked in on him doing inappropriate things to me. And this is your grandmother walked in. Yes. And she said that she had kicked him out for 10 months. She had kicked him out of the house and they weren't together. But then they had friends coming to visit from Scotland that she did not want to be embarrassed that she was getting a divorce or that she was separated from her husband. She didn't want that embarrassment. So she let him back into the house. Wow. And that was, I figured out from timeline because I remembered those people coming to visit and I remembered we had photos and I specifically did a little bit of sleuthing through the old family photo albums of the year that they came to visit. I was eight. And that's how I figured out that that is probably when it stopped happening. That's so deeply upsetting to hear that she held like keeping up appearances and personal embarrassment above your safety. Yeah. And so finding that out when I was 24-ish, 25, something, whatever age I was when I found that out, that shattered me because knowing that this person that was I was so close to knew that she was married to a literal monster and she let him be alone with me. And she let him, she let him abuse me. And, and the other family members. Yeah. And she's still married to him to this day. And unfortunately, like there is a little bit of good and bad to them still being together a little bit because Unfortunately, she is in her 70s now and she is, has dementia and dementia runs really strong in my family. And so he takes care of her and he drives her places and this and that in a sense that I don't know that she would have other family members do the same thing because of her choice to stay with him. Like my mom, they live in the same house, but they're on opposite different sides. And my mom barely associates with her anymore. And my grandma asked her, why don't you ever come see me anymore on my side of the house? And my mom's response was, why did you stay married to a pedophile? And so it's, it, it's, it'll, it's never the same. And I know there are things on my podcast that I can't even share like those details that she knew because as much as it, it hurts me that 
what she, the actions that she did, that she let me be abused. I don't want her to have any more retaliation from my mom because I know she is in rough condition and I know she probably only has a good couple of years left where she is in her full facilities that she's going to remember us. And I don't, I don't want to make her life any harder. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, then I would do all the healing things and all this and that. And I was in the healing process and my best friend from college, I'm very close to her and she's my co-host from our podcast, Motherful podcast she works for cys which is children and youth here in pennsylvania and so she's dealing with these cases every day every week and it's it's kind of my sister is also in the same they work together my sister and my best friend work together in the same office and they both work for children and youth and i said like i don't i could never do it like coming from that personal place i was like i don't know how you can do this every day talk to these people that this is happening to and stay sane because i would literally go crazy yeah and she she struggles with an eating disorder so we both come of place from places of trauma from a very young age and I was talking to her saying the abuse happened there's nothing that I can do to change that and what do I do how do I how do I make this a a helpful positive thing and that's when she actually came up with the idea of us starting a podcast And for the podcast, I started reading a book called The Courage to Heal, a guide for women survivors of child sexual abuse. And honestly, I had bought the book with the intention of doing sort of research just for the podcast. And then I got 14 pages in and I started bawling because I realized I'm not okay. I'm not better. I have so much, I still have so much work left to do in this journey. And I was still in a sense, putting my trauma into that box and not dealing with it. And so when we decided we were going to start a podcast, this is going to bring us full circle here. When I, we started a podcast, I was looking for other similar podcasts that were talking to survivors of abuse, which is when I came across your (laughs) podcast. And unfortunately, like, I didn't find many options out there. Like, this was one of the only options I didn't for either. survivors. And I was so I was surprised shocked. By that. So surprised. Yeah. Because, and this was an early part discussion that Kayla and I had where we said, there's not going to be one listener who doesn't have a traumatic experience that they can't relate to us. Not one person. And all of the podcasts that I was finding that had similar topics were very clinical and they weren't on a personal level and they weren't talking to people. They were kind of just an overview and they weren't going into the nitty gritty, which is what I wanted to do Yeah, with my trauma and with her trauma with an eating disorder and just any trauma. We wanted to talk to people, to share their stories, and we wanted to talk about the subjects that are taboo in our society. Because not a lot of people are talking about them. Unfortunately, still, a lot of people are not talking about them. I think I think people are talking about them more. One thing that I've been noticing, and I, I noticed this like after I started finding okay, like this podcast, because initially I was like, well, before I do this, I should figure out what's out there. Right. Like, what what's happening in podcasts, what already exists. Right. Um and I I barely found anything. And then it was after I already 
had started it, that more things started to pop up on my radar. And so I think a huge, and and also like on social media as well, there are people who are doing this work who are talking about things, but being able to search for them and actually find them is severely hindered by censorship in the way that like certain social media things will actually allow you to like say certain things, TikTok being one of them. So you have to know what to search for or what to type in to have things actually pop up. And then that depends on the search engine you're using, you know, like if there's abbreviations for terms, like, and, and so it's, it varies wildly. And it's upsetting to me that these spaces where these conversations are happening, these resources and these communities where people are doing this work together and making space for this really painful and very prevalent human experience. Like this has happened to so many people. Yeah. Like I hardly know anybody that does not have a story about sexual assault. And yep. yet when I was typing in podcast sexual assault, almost nothing was popping up. That's pretty outrageous. Yeah. That's pretty and a lot ridiculous. of the ones that I was finding when I was doing my initial research were ones that were kind of like college projects that they did it for like a couple episodes and then it it died out and it unfortunately they didn't keep going with it but yeah like i the, the by yeah it's hard to find the resources in the podcasting world at least there and it's so yeah. crazy because what one in three people you talk to random three people and they all have podcasts like everyone has a podcast now. <laughs> yeah no every especially after pandemic like covid hit and like everyone and their mother started a podcast for a minute there and like yep. you know and and then you take into account like how many people have you know all this really heavy shit to talk about and like i know i know people are talking about it it's 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 wild before i forget what's the author of that book that you held up it is Ellen Bass and Laura Davis. Thank and the you. workbook, it, it, there's so there's two copies of it. The Courage to Heal book is the one that I have. And it's just the the straight wordage. Like it's just the, the novel. But they also have a workbook that goes along awesome. with it that you write in the book. And I chose not to get that one at that time. They were kind of expensive for my budget. They were like $20 a piece. So I was like, I don't have $40 to drop on books. But I do eventually want to get the workbook to go along with it. And it asks you different prompts and different things that you can write in the book that I think would be beneficial. So if you're not much of a reader, but you're a writer, that would be an option to look into too. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that because people are always asking and looking for books and workbooks, especially. And I just like, I tried that for a hot minute and it just like, it, it just didn't really click for me. So, so I never have them to give to people. And so I'm so glad to talk to somebody that's like, Hey, this was a resource. You mentioned that you had done therapy for a while. Has that kind of been like an on and off thing for you? So I did last year when I was going through, when we were, uh, ironically, we were starting the podcast. I was very, very depressed. Like I was in a very, very low point. And I had started doing um, online therapy it was like a free month trial. Unfortunately, I couldn't afford to keep going with it afterwards. But in that moment of going through therapy for that month, I was very low. And a lot of what I was learning was coping mechanisms for how to kind of bring myself back down when I was in a place of panic. And so 
I have no blame for the therapist, obviously, because I was only able to do it for a month, but I would like to be able to go back to just kind of, it wasn't much of talk therapy. It wasn't working through the issues that I had. It was more of just finding solutions for the current state I was in. So I would like to Mm -hmm. be able to talk through it, but unfortunately I just haven't been able to afford that outside of the free trial that I had done. Uh, But what in your life has been the most helpful in terms of healing? So I'm currently writing, and I, I shouldn't say currently, I've been writing it for a very long time. I'm writing a book about my abuse and it'll be a, a, like a collective of poems and short stories mostly about different things that happened. And I, I keep thinking in the back of my mind, I, like I love writing. It's it's my thing. I, I write down everything that I'm thinking and I keep thinking, I don't know when it's going to be finished that I'm going to be like, all right, this is enough. This is it. But part of me keeps always in the back of my mind. Well, when he dies, I'll be able to finish it. Mm. I'll be able to, cause he's in his late seventies. And honestly, when I was a teenager and thinking about it, I was like, Oh, well maybe when he dies, I'll be able to start telling people. And unfortunately he survived the war. He survived cancer. He survived numerous things that should have fucking killed him. And he just keeps living on and he keeps surviving. And here I am almost 20 years after the abuse happened and he's still alive. But I don't, I I don't know if I'll be able to put a, a bow on it and say, this is the finished product until, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. I like to envision sometimes what happens when he does die, like how that moment will go. I'm writing a current story about it. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I um yeah, the the death of an abuser is such a uh, I yeah, I don't know how to uh all of my abusers that have abused me sexually are still alive. But the teacher that Uh, was emotionally abusive that I hold responsible for initiating the CPTSD and setting up the pattern of abuse that made me open to further abuse in my life. She died and I didn't even know it until years later till I recognized like what she had actually done and how it, it had actually fully affected my whole life. And so I I found out like and I had to do all this research and then figured out that that she had actually died before I even realized that what she had done was child abuse. And so I never got a chance to I don't know anything. I I never got a chance for anything. And so like all that's left is is me asking questions about like do I want to go to this graveyard somewhere like do I bring a bottle of wine? Do I write her a letter? Do I spit on her grave? Like I like I don't know. Like do I talk to the headstone? Like, you know, like or do I just not go at all? Like does that not mean anything to me? And you know, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, like what does the death of an abuser mean to us? I think it's it's a loaded thing and um I think it's just so different for for everybody. But I hope that if it feels appropriate for me to say, I hope it's everything that you want it to be. Like I, I, really I so wish too. you a very merry death of your abuser Thank when you. that day comes. Thank you. Yes. And I will say like, 
as much as I hate that my family is now in shambles, um, I do feel so much more liberated having them know and having the capability because for 20, almost 20 years, I had to pretend like there was nothing wrong. Even when I was starting to do that healing when I was in college and no one knew, I still had to pretend that nothing was wrong. And I had to go to family functions, Christmas, Thanksgiving, and sit across the table from him like nothing was wrong. So it is much more liberating now to say, no, I don't really want to be around him. And I haven't talked to him in years at this point. And he still lives at the same house. And I just, I have chosen that that is not something that I want to am interested in anymore. And it, it it does kind of feel like a little bit of a, almost, he's, he's a coward is what it is. He's a coward because he has had conversations both with my husband and my cousin that I told first about what had happened to me, but he has never once said, oh, I'm sorry, or anything to me, anything. But he's had conversations with them about it. And I was like, what's that all about? What did he say to them? Well, when my cousin, it all came out, he said to my cousin, oh, I guess something must be messed up in the genes. And I hope you don't hate me because he was a pedophile and so was his dad and so was his brother. Oh, yeah. So like, yeah, there is a, a long history, but that's not science. That's not genetic, but there is a long history of abuse in my family. Even my mom thinks that she was probably abused by her dad. Oh, jeez. But she also has blackout memories like I do, where she's like, I have no clue what happened. And my grandma was abused by her father, which is part of probably the reason that she let it happen, because she just thought it was sort of, unfortunately, sort of normal. It happened to her by multiple people when she was growing up and as a kid. So to her, and when I was having the conversation with her, she compared it to her brother, her brother-in-law. So my pap's brother, he likes to sleep around with people's wives in the family. And he compared it, she compared it to that. And I'm like, okay, but those are consenting adults. And this is a, your husband, a man with a child. So Wildly no, different. Yeah. They're not the same. But no. No. So yeah. What did he say to your husband, if I may ask? Oh, well, he, I don't know the exact wordage, but he was saying something like my husband threatened him and said, if you even ever look at my child, that's it. And there has been so much, it's not funny, but it is funny. There's been so much talk in my family. How do we get rid of him? How do we take care of him? And if if anything were to happen to my child or anything happened to she has younger cousins that are around her age, if anything would happen to them, he'd be gone. Yeah. He'd be gone. We mysterious accident. Uh, I'll just say we, my parents live by a whole bunch of pig farmers. Nice. Uh, so, and it's always Old like, men trip on yeah, farms yeah. all the time. Yep. Uh, so yeah. Um, yeah. So that was kind of just it. Like, don't even fucking look at my daughter was what my husband said to him. And he likes to try to play the, oh, I've changed card or something like that. But I don't think, I personally don't think a pedophile can change. Like if that's no. in your brain and that's in your mind and you've acted on that, you can act on it again. Yeah. No. And if you, I, I believe that like reform and is possible, but with treatment and with accountability and with support structures and like. I don't think it's just a flip a flip the switch like oh I turned it off like I don't think you can really just 
turn that off, if you could do that, then why wouldn't you have all those years ago? Like, I, like, I don't, unfortunately, I think you're, I I agree. I think you're right that they can go through treatment and supports and all this and that. But I don't think that the chemical makeup of their brain can change. Like, even if they abuse children, yeah, maybe they never abuse children again, but I think that that thought is still in their mind. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that that can be turned off. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, like, I, it's a loaded, like, conversation, and especially with, like, human rights stuff as well in prisons, like, people who are actually in prison who have been charged with pedophilia and like sexual assault and pedophilia is the one that they tend to really take more seriously and they're trying to figure out like how do we treat this like this is these people are sick like what what the fuck do we do about this and uh and have experimented with different kinds of treatment one of them being chemical castration and that is like loaded human rights stuff and a lot of different opinions about that. But uh, what I found interesting was that there were pedophiles who had uh, volunteered for chemical castration. They had been given options, one of them being chemical castration, and they volunteered and said, I would like that. Uh, and whether that has to do with like how attractive their various options were and that that was like or or if it was specifically like no I specifically want that because that will help me but like hearing the reports from people who had actually gone through this who you know were undergoing chemical castration who were like yeah I don't it's such a relief I don't have those thoughts anymore like I've been plagued by them my whole life and now they're gone and like I'm, I'm, I I don't know. Like I I'm I'm I you know I certainly give weight to like questions about hu- like human rights and that's perfectly valid. Of course, of course, and you know, and everybody deserves bodily autonomy. But at the same time, like you know, having it be an option uh, for somebody who's who's like, if this is the only way that we've discovered to turn those thoughts off in my brain and to have this not be an urge that I experience anymore. I choose that. Like I personally, I'm kind of for that being an option for people. Yeah. It's like 50, 50. Like if, if you choose that and you you feel like a shit human being because you have sexual attraction towards children, great. Like that's great if there's options to help you. But unfortunately the other half of the coin is people that, no, I don't want them. I want to keep having relations with children. I want to keep the thoughts. Yeah. And those are the real monsters, but Yeah. And there's so many of them. So it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Um Yeah, I will definitely say one of my biggest fears, biggest fears is that something is going to happen to my daughter that I'm not going to be able to control. Because if I couldn't trust my grandfather and my mom couldn't trust her own dad, who the fuck can you trust? Yeah. Who do I work with that could be a pedophile or a rapist or anything or even a murderer? But who do you trust? Who in your own social circle could be an abuser? And that's really like it, it really fucks me up, especially seeing my daughter age into the age where I believe it started happening to me and knowing that she would not necessarily have the vocabulary to describe if something was going wrong. 
or the knowledge to know because you always say oh tell your teach your kids that what is private is private but at a certain age they're not going to understand that and they're not going to know how to voice the problem of something is happening that shouldn't be and like if it was with me that I was manipulated into thinking that it was normal kids are just such squishy sponges that I don't it terrifies me to think that I could be like my mom and find out in 20 years that something happened to her that I had no idea about. I mean, clearly people in my family knew that I was around a pedophile, but it's the same thing. Like if they didn't say like, I I just, it's hard. How do you, how do you deal with those fears about, about your daughter? Like what, what helps you? Um, you know, it's pretty much nothing. Um, gotcha. But what for example, so my husband and I were both sexually abused as kids. Like we both okay. have abusers. And so we don't let our daughter go anywhere where she, like it's not only men that are abusers, but she is never around men without other people being there. We do not send her to daycare. She doesn't go to any child care. My husband and I work opposing schedules so that one of us is always with her and she doesn't go to a babysitter. She doesn't, if she goes to her grandparents' house, it's multiple people in the house. It's not just one person to have sort of that accountability. Yeah. And yeah, it's just always having one of us there to know that nothing, and it's not going to be that way forever. Like she's eventually going to have to go to school and start having sleepovers at her friends' houses and things and to be able to release that control a little bit is going to be hard because she has been so, I don't want to say sheltered, but like sheltered with us. Protected. Yeah. Yeah. Protected. Well, I'm glad that you, that you care so much that, you know, that protection that you didn't receive as a child that you're able to offer that to her. And honestly, that has been, I have a whole podcast episode of my struggles becoming a mother that my challenges with that. But honestly, it's part of the reason I didn't want to be a mom is because I didn't want the same thing to happen to my child that happened to me and I couldn't do anything. And this world is so cruel and it's all unfair and it's, it's, it's all shit. It's all shit. (laughs) And I didn't want to expose more of, I didn't want to be responsible for that bringing shit into someone else's life. And that's why being a mom is hard for me. I love my daughter and I love the experience of being a mom, but it is hard. And I'm, I don't compare myself to other moms in multiple ways that it's just hard to be a mom. I loved how honestly you spoke about your birth story and your process and becoming a mother on the podcast. Like I, I really appreciate that. And I think it's so important for uh, like, like your co-host said, I think it's so important for people to have access to, to different kinds of birth stories um, that they're, that they're all wildly different and so often we are only like there's there's just one specific kind that is put forward into the forefront that is this very shiny um baby showers and going on fun play dates and unfortunately for me becoming a mom and when I was pregnant was not that it was very hard emotionally, not physically. Like I had a fine pregnancy physically, but it was very, very hard emotionally to be pregnant and to be bringing a life into the world because no one was excited for me. My family didn't want me to have a baby. I didn't want to have a baby. 
and seeing people around me, like Kayla, my co-host sister was pregnant at the same time as me and seeing her family so excited to bring a new life into this world. And for me to have gotten none of that support was very hard. I didn't get a baby shower. I didn't get any sparkly things. Why wasn't your family excited? It's a secondary long story that's kind of unimportant to this story, but it's in the podcast if anyone wants to go listen. But the short part of it is that my mom does not like or approve of my husband. She does not, 100% does not like him. And so the fact that I had a child with him, the man that I love, that I've been with over six years at this point, she did not want me to bring a, a life into this world with him. Gotcha. She lo- like she loves her granddaughter and it's it's all great now. Like they they take her on the weekends sometimes and like they have a great relationship with my daughter. But up until that point, it wasn't they weren't excited that I was committing more of myself to this man. And that's also very hard because my life revolves around my little family and I have a great time and I love it. But I can't share that with her or with my parents because they just kind of snub it and turn a blind eye and be like, oh. All right. I don't get to share in my excitements. Like when I was getting married, I was so excited to get married. I'm a wedding planner. I love weddings. I get so excited. And I couldn't share that excitement with my own mother because she didn't approve of the wedding. That's rough. Very rough. So yeah, it all goes along with it of difficulties in my life. (laughs) And how old were you when you got pregnant? I want to say 23 or 24. When I found out that I was pregnant, I was... 20, 23 weeks along, which if people don't know, a pregnancy only lasts 40 weeks. So Mm -hmm. I was over halfway through my pregnancy when I found out that I was pregnant. And so my options were nothing. My options were limited. I couldn't, I didn't have the option to make decisions really. Yeah. And so our original decision, the way that I found out how far along I was, was I was in the abortion clinic and I was scheduled to go through with the procedure. And they told me I was too far along to get the procedure, which was devastating in that moment. And that's why it's hard to talk about my journey to motherhood because people, I don't want people to say, oh, you didn't want to be a mom, so you must not love your child. I love my child. I love my kid but it wasn't a path that I was ready for or wanted. And a lot of that was due to not having family support of a pregnancy. And then when I couldn't get the abortion, we had decided that we were going to give her up for adoption and find a family that would love her, which my family was also not okay with. And my mom said, Oh, well, we'll just take the kid until you guys are ready to take her back. But in my mind that the two things were not the same. When I was agreeing that I wanted to give her to another family, it was, I'm going to make this family so happy and they're going to be the parents. I'm not going to be the parents. I'm going to give birth. And then it is someone else's bundle of joy. But when it was my mom and my dad taking care of this baby, my child was going to be growing up. Where's my mom? Why didn't my mom want me? Why didn't she love me enough to keep me? And that wasn't at all the reasons that I didn't want to have her. Mm-hmm. but that was our plan was to give our daughter to my parents to take care of up until she was three days old. 
And that is when the decision was made. My husband had said that he couldn't do it. He couldn't give our daughter to my parents. And for good reason. Like, it was the right decision. And now, from where I am now, she's almost going to be four soon. But in that moment, I wasn't ready to be a mom. At no point of that pregnancy, of finding out that I was pregnant halfway through, no point was I preparing to take care of a child. And so here I am, just had a C-section, have a three-day-old baby. My parents had come down from Pennsylvania to North Carolina for the birth because they were planning on taking her back with them. Here I am with a three-day-old baby. I didn't even, I didn't have a crib. I didn't have, I had a pack and play, I think. Here I am with a baby and I'm like, what do I do with this? Yeah. And I, I didn't, obviously I didn't take birthing classes. I didn't, do any of the things I didn't have a baby shower I didn't do any of the things to be ready for a mom yeah but here I was as a mom wow here I am as a mom yeah and that's why on the podcast I talk a lot about things that set me apart from other moms is that I can't relate to being so excited to have kids and having more kids and wanting to be a mom and this was my life's mission was to have kids and be a mom and I just I can't relate to it and I'm I'm a little edgier than a lot of moms. I don't, I'm not vegetarian. I don't eat super healthy and we have pizza all the time. And so it's hard to find other moms that I can relate to that have, I don't know anyone that has a similar story to mine. And that's really isolating to know that I am a mom with an asterisk that I am not the other moms. And I I try to explain this to my husband. He's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, what do you mean you gave up part of yourself? You're still the same person as when you were before you were a mom. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't, I, I'm not anything like I was. And I'm not anything like these other moms. And it's, it's I'm a completely different person. I, yeah. I've, I've actually, I've talked to other people as well. And that's actually a, a reoccurring thing that I've heard from people is like, no, you become a different person. It changes who you are. Like it's such it's such a shift on the axis of your whole existence that it does change who you are uh, to a certain degree. And like, I, I think there are a lot of parents out there that do have similar stories. Um, Maybe not like in terms of the specifics, but in that like unplanned uh, and no preparation and, you know, and, and just, uh, and all of a sudden this just happening uh, and it not necessarily like being a choice and uh, and those things can go together. This wasn't a this wasn't chosen necessarily, but it has occurred. And yes, you love your child. Of course. And I think those are really important things to to talk about. And I love that you have your podcast and that you're actually talking about these things because that's so that's so important to hear that those two things can go together, that you can have this was like, and I mean this in the best way, but this was an unwanted situation. It wasn't your choice. And then you love your child. Uh, And this isn't me trying to, I want to clarify again, this is a pro-choice podcast. Like this isn't like some like sneaky little pro-life bullshit. Like I'm trying to slip under people's radar. Like, no, I'm just talking about for the people that this has occurred for, that it's important an important part of an experience and an aspect to being a parent, to being a human being, to raising another human being, and that it's so important to talk about all the different kinds of experiences that you can have. Same, same with birth stories. Like the, like there's a really beautiful 
I think it's a TED talk. The the title of the TED talk and like the the under overall arching message is the danger of the single story. Yeah. And that is and and that danger can manifest in any aspect of existence. When we when we only tell one story, we all lose. And that I think is very true of motherhood or parenthood as well. And so I'm glad that you're talking about all of these things. Yeah. And I, a lot of the podcast, I listen to a couple mom podcasts, but a lot of the mom podcasts that I listen to, obviously being a a parent is challenging. It's always going to have its its ups and downs, but a lot of the parenting podcasts that I listen to are talking about things that are hard and then kind of like laughing it off. But to me, it's not a joke. Like it's, it's very hard. Some of these things and I'm Mm. a more serious person. I don't like, I just, I can't make jokes about something that deeply affects me. Yeah. And so not sugarcoating the things that are hard and validating both my experience and other people's experiences that are like, this is hard. And I don't think it's funny. That's so important because like for, for every for every like mom blog or podcast that's laughing off those tough moments, I think it's so important to be holding that space that you are being willing to to say like this is serious. This is like a deeply upsetting part of my experience, and I know I'm not alone. And we're gonna feel our way through this and actually talk about how this is affecting people because like I know <laughs> that. That there are a whole bunch of people like, you know, and and even some of the ones that are, you know, laughing their way through it, that they're like crying with their bathroom door closed and when their kids are playing or something like because they, there isn't space made for it. That's yeah. their space for it is like crying in their in their bathroom alone thinking that like no one will understand. And that's right. dangerous. Yeah. When you don't make space for these things, that's when things get really bad for parents, for kids making space for for all this uh for all this messiness and all these deeply isolating uh and uncomfortable difficult things yeah and i do want to just maybe make a note that uh the title of our podcast is motherful podcast powerful moms powerful topics but it's not just a parenting podcast like it, it seems to get that confusion just because moms is in the title but it's a mental health podcast. We don't just talk about mom stuff. We talk about LGBT rights and we talk about mental health, depression and ADHD and bipolar disorders and all of it. And just, mm-hmm. We just happen to be two moms and we both and the family to have trauma. trauma. Yeah. We just happen yeah. to have be two moms that have trauma. So we talk about both trauma that we've gone through and issues with parenting that we have. So mm-hmm. I got that a couple times. So they're like, oh, you're a mom podcast. I'm like, no, I'm not a mom podcast. I'm a mental health podcast. And if you're mm-hmm. not a parent and you're not interested in listening to the, the birthing stories and the parenting things, there's a lot other th- topics on yeah. there that aren't about that. No, thank you for mentioning that. That's incredibly important to note. You mentioned the um, like part of your abortion story uh, or the abortion that was not. And I wanted to ask how Roe v. Wade being repealed has been affecting you, uh, if you wanted to talk about that at all. Yes. So and I've had discussions with my partner, with my close friends, with our roommate. And, you know, we were all warned that this was probably going to happen. So at that point, when we were, the documents were leaked that this was happening, 
I was like, okay, cool. So it's, it's happening. Like there was, that was, that was the signing date for me. But the day that it was overturned, my roommate and my husband asked me, they were discussing it at dinner. Like they were talking about it back and forth and they asked me, so they're like, well, as a woman with a uterus, a uterus haver, what are your thoughts? What do you think about this? And I just, I stayed silent for a moment. And honestly, and it's still true, like, I feel pretty numb about it. Because in my mind, and I told a friend this, like, I was not surprised that this happened. Back when Donald Trump got elected into to presidency, I'm like, well, all the cards are on the table. Anything can happen now. Anything could happen now. And so I was not surprised that this was overturned, even though it was in effect for so long, people were thinking, no, there's no way that it could get overturned. But it was, and I was not surprised. I've seen The Handmaid's Tale. I was not surprised of things that our government and our world can do to diminish people's self-worth and their freedoms and their rights. And so I, I just, I felt numb because I knew it was happening. I was not surprised. And I felt a matter of helplessness of what can I actually do? Because you look at the statistics and this was not a majority vote. Like the majority of the citizens in the United States did not want this to happen. But here the citizens are saying, well, it's already done. So what can we actually do? And I don't know the answer to that. Honestly, I don't, I don't know. It's, I live it's in a, a really state. frustrating. So I live in Pennsylvania where we're a, a blue state right now and we're safe for now, but we have a governor election coming up in November that come November, we might not be safe. Is, is Pennsylvania a swing state? Do you kind of oscillate between like blue and red? Am I remembering correctly? So we've been blue. Like we've had a blue, our, our governor, I hope it's Tom Wolf. If it's not Tom Wolf, I'm going to feel like an idiot and someone's going to probably correct me, but uh, he is Democrat and we've had him, he's at his max term limit now. Like he's had the max amount mm-hmm. of, I don't know how long that is, but he can no longer rerun. And he's been reelected every single time that he's reran. But the issue is Pennsylvania is two things. Pennsylvania is Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, where I live, and Harrisburg. Those are the three Democratic cities that vote blue every majority every single time. The rest of Pennsylvania is red. Mm, okay. So, and I, I think that's a pretty common occurrence is there's a lot of Democratic voters in cities and more Republicans the, in the middle of nowhere in this, but it just, yeah. it, it really, it's, and unfortunately the governor that is running for the Republican party for Pennsylvania, not a great guy, uh, anti-LGBT, anti-abortion rights. All of the things that make humans humans, you know, like it's not going to be a good time. And honestly, my roommate and my husband and I are, we're like, if come November, we might have to leave. Yeah, that's, that's a conversation I I keep having with my, um, with my partner. Uh, I mean, first of all, like I, I hear you on the, on the numbness thing. That's been kind of a reoccurring thing. And, and honestly, like I personally, like I, I kind of view the whole thing as like, this is a a re-traumatizing event. Like this is like to lose rights to have bodily autonomy taken away is inherently traumatizing. And it is re-traumatizing for someone who has experienced sexual assault. So that's 
a part of it. And, uh, and also like any feeling of helplessness, especially having to do with your own body uh, and those, and especially like having to do with like reproductive stuff, like again, more drama. Um, And uh, yeah. And I keep, I keep like having the conversation with him just sort of like, so at what point do we leave this country? Yeah, we've had that discussion too. Uh, have you seen The Handmaid's Tale? I read it, and okay. I want to read the book. I haven't read the book, but I have to it's read. like I honestly I've chosen not to watch the show because I'm like that like will be just extremely triggering, yes, and I'm I'm just fair. like I'm good because um, like the book is rough enough the reason i had brought that up because a a major theme in that beginning of that movie was there was a very limited amount of time that people had to escape the what was the u.s at the time and it isn't just like them overturning roe v wade it's not actually that out there to think that that could be a potential that people would have to leave the united states for human right access yeah so yeah, no, it's, we've, it's, we've also discussed it in my household of yeah. what country are we going to? At what at what point do we leave? Where do we go? Taking climate change into like account is another part of the conversation. Just sort of like where do we go? Where is going to be habitable in like what like 10, 15 years? It's it's surreal and uh, and and kind of yeah that that numbing feeling is very much uh, very much a part of it all. I'm not shocked either. Yeah, I something something that something that's been very difficult for me to kind of like move through is when the people that it doesn't affect, so people who do not have a uterus, mainly cis men, uh, when they express like that this isn't their problem or that they like that it's not theirs to fix. It's like who do you think is doing this like we still don't have equal representation in our government right there's a limited number of uteruses holding positions of legislative power who do you who do you think did this and i'm blown like it is kind of deeply upsetting to me to hear men uh just just kind of like conversationally like wash their hands of it and be like well I, you know what am i supposed to do and it's like literally anything sir literally fucking anything um, yeah i mean it's just a, it's just another example of what i was saying at the beginning not my circus not my monkeys my body is not your circus goodbye mm-hmm. you don't have to be involved in my decisions for my body and my life that's yeah. not your place yeah, and the people in in government and politics and rich people these decisions aren't affecting them. They're only affecting the actual citizens, the lower class, the middle class, yeah. the people in government, the people that are rich won't have to worry about these problems. No, their their mistresses and their wives will always have access to safe abortions and they'll be getting them. They they have been this whole time. They will continue to get them. They can afford access to that care even if it's illegal. And it's the other people that w- will die. Like yeah will die. I got in a, a a debate one time with a friend's boyfriend who he was trying to defend the United States as one of the best countries in the world that we are always told that growing up that it is. And he was trying to defend that argument. I'm like, but how? Like, how could you defend that argument? And then I had to take a step back. And I remembered that his family was rich growing up. 
So he uh, never had to want for anything. He it's was been in fantastic medical, for you he was, the whole He's time. in med school. He had access to all of the medical care, all of the anything that he could want, he could have. And he never had to worry about the problems. And so I was like, okay, I get it. I understand why you don't think that the United States is a fucked up place, but it is. Yeah, you've had, you've had a, a, a lovely little slice of American pie the whole time. Yeah. The rest of us are still scrambling to get to the table. And, you know, I'm so happy for you that you didn't have to worry about those things. But you know who did? The rest of us. Yeah. Everyone else. Yeah. Oi, 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 oi. Something that I would love to talk about is you mentioned earlier trauma brain, so memory, and I would love to talk about that. Uh, Trauma brain. I thought I was crazy growing up because there were things that my family would bring up to me. Like we went to Disney World multiple, like twice as kids growing up. And I wasn't that much older than what I was when I went and they would be asking me things. And I was like, I don't remember that. And they would say things to me like, well, what do we spend all this money for to take you on all these trips and these fun things if you're not even going to remember them? And I really thought for the longest time that I was there was something wrong with me and there was something screwed up in my head. But in reading the book that I read for my healing, The Courage to Heal, it goes over side effects of traumatic sexual experiences. And one of them is trauma brain. And so for me, that manifest as I have very few, very, very few memories from high school and before. Like I'm 27 and I don't remember things from 10 years ago. Like a lot of details I do not remember. And a lot of my memory works in, I describe it as sort of like TikToks where I remember 10 minute reloop reloops of what happened. And sometimes I don't even know if those are real or if it's something that my brain made up off of looking at a picture. And so that's really fucked up. Like I'll look at old pictures that my parents have and I was like, when did that happen? Like I went to in high school, I went on vacation. We went on a family vacation and my boyfriend went with us and I had no memory of him going with us. None. I remember zero details of that trip. And he was a serious boyfriend at the time. And so it kind of affects how I remember my trauma just because I have very few memories of it actually happening, but I know that it did. It's more of like a feeling and the few memories that I do have. And so sometimes when I'm talking to other survivors, like my husband, he can very clearly remember every detail of his abuse. And I remember very few. And when I tell my story, people are like, oh, that's so, like, I'm so sorry. This happened to me, but it doesn't sound as worse as your thing. And I, well, first of all, like, that's garbage. Like, no one's story, it doesn't work like that. It's not equal playing fields. Your story is valid just because it's not as severe as you think someone else's. But I don't, I don't remember the abuse and I don't remember my childhood. And so a lot of the times when I'm reading books and reading resources that say you have to heal your inner child. I don't know who that is. I don't remember who I was as a child. I don't I don't relate to them at all. Uh, it kind of relates to my current life as well, where like people will be like, oh my gosh, can you believe your daughter's three and she's almost going to be four? But I don't remember my life before my daughter or before my husband. They, to me, they have always been there. 
I've been married with my husband for six going on seven years. He has always been a part of my life in my memory. And so that's how it kind of correlates to me. And it does really, really concern me because dementia does run so heavy in my family and dementia as I get older and people in my family get older. A lot of the times you revert back to long-term memory of when you were a kid, when you were younger growing up. And I don't have those memories. So I don't know who, what I, who I'm going to remember, what I'm going to remember if that does happen to me. Because I can barely remember now. Was there a time that you can recall that you made this realization like that it was unusual to not remember to have like this this massive section missing that you were that you realized I'm missing memory I don't really think so a lot of it was because of my family saying why don't you remember that thing or this thing and having those conversations with my sister or people in my family of things that had happened that I just I was like oh when did that happen oh I don't remember that and it it does feel like a trap sometimes of did that actually happen or are you trying to manipulate me? And does mm. saying things happen that didn't because I wouldn't know the difference. Mm. I wanted to also talk about the letter. So the way that the way that we connected was you actually uh and I'll I'll play it at the beginning of the episode, but you wrote a beautiful letter for the fire for season three's project. And I wanted to to ask about that and and kind of just like make space for you to share that process, you know, because you had mentioned that you had like left it for him to read. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, when I was writing that letter and I submitted it after your original deadline because I'm a procrastinator, but actually I had wrote that letter and I had wrote many forms of this letter over the years of what I would want to say or write to him. And this was the one I submitted to you was a close variation of what I had actually left for him. I wrote a letter that I was giving to him. And when I went home to my family's house for Christmas, I had expected him to sort of be there. And I was going to, in my mind, I was trying to build myself up. I'm going to confront him. I'm going to confront him. And I didn't know what was going to happen of that outcome. But it ended up being that he wasn't there. Like my grandma, thankfully, like does send him away for holidays now because no one would come if he was still there. Mm-hmm. But I had this letter and I left it on his chair where he, he sits in his living room. And I, I, that's the end of it. Like that's all I don't, like I said, I haven't seen him. I haven't talked to him. I haven't done anything with him. So in my mind, I don't even know if he read it or if maybe my grandma might've seen it and taken it and shredded it up, thrown it away because she likes to protect him from things similar to that. But Mm -hmm. in my mind, I just have to be comfortable with the fact of this was my confronting him. This was my telling him, fuck you. You are, you're garbage. You're a shit human. And I hope he thinks about that every single day. Even if he didn't read the letter, I hope he thinks about that every single day. I hope so too. Yeah. And I think I mentioned that you're doing the letters for the fire again this season at the end that I think I might write a letter to my grandma this season for that. So that's a really good idea. Yeah. Like it was, and it's, it's, it's hard because up until this point, I have no positive older adults in my life, like positive role models. So in my mind, it's going to sound bad to say, but I don't trust old people. I don't have any reason to. 
they've all proven to be distrustworthy. So just the people in my life that were supposed to protect me didn't. And I, it, it affects me on how I live and how my relationships are with all of my family. Thank you so much for talking about your grandma too, because like all of these, all of these predators, they always surround themselves with enablers. Yep. And they are just as much a piece of the puzzle. And they're so important to talk about, um, especially when they're family members. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you deal with the feelings uh, that arise when it comes to the adults in your life that failed to protect you or chose not to protect you? How do you cope with that? I mean, the, uh, there were people in my family that I, I don't really, I'm not, I was never close with that protected him and not me, but I do have a lot of hostility in my, in my heart for my grandma finding out things that I found out. And I, I wish, and I want to try to overcome that with the knowledge that she's not going to apologize. Like she's done as much as she can, especially in her current facilities. Like she's, she's done. And I'm not going to get any more out of her. Like this is who she is. And this is as far as that journey goes for her. And so coming to terms with how do I accept that knowing that I'm not going to have her around for much longer and I don't want to have her something happen to her with me still being angry and hostile towards Mm -hmm. her. But other than that, like there were people in my family that knew sort of like had an inclination that just chose to do nothing. And I hold that against them as well. They, they didn't ask questions when you see triggering signs. There were some of them that did, even if they didn't directly know and you chose to do nothing. And I always say that I don't regret not coming forward as a kid because I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready to tell and have my life changed when I was a kid. The only thing that I regret is not knowing if I was the last one that he did this to because Mm -hmm. I didn't speak up. There were, I was the youngest person in our family in terms of the kids, but there were other people outside of our family that he could have done it to. And I could have been just another enabler because I didn't say anything it differently. Obviously it's not my, I know it's not my fault. I, I can't put that blame on myself, but it is a, a thought that always goes through my head that other yeah. survivors might be out there that I just don't know about. Do you think that you ever will confront him? I don't think so. I think I think I've decided that there's ultimately nothing that I could ask or say to him that I didn't believe he wouldn't just try to make excuses for or lie about. There's no part of my my brain puzzle that I have to still put together that accounts on needing something from him. Mm-hmm. I, I don't need that from him. I just need him to die. <laughs> fucked up as that sounds but it honestly it doesn't to me <laughs> maybe maybe it does to some people but um but i think a lot of survivors would definitely understand yeah. is there anything that you would like to say to the survivors who are listening you have to be able to heal and talk about what happened to you when you're ready if you're railroaded into trying to disclose earlier than you're ready for you're not ready like you're not going to actually be able to heal from that and whether you're 16 or you're 
35 or you're 75, I think it is important to be able to take the those feelings outside of the back of your closet of your brain and be able to work through them no matter how hard it is. It was so fucking hard last year when I was doing all the trauma work. It was so hard. And it's so easy to say that I wish I could go back because it was so much simpler before I started doing all of this, before I started telling my family, before I started healing. But that wasn't a genuine, true version of myself. And I think you'll find the liberation once you start talking about it with whoever you choose to talk about it with to disclose it. The reason that I started this podcast was so that I could be as true to myself and to my audience. And I don't keep secrets. I tell my truth as it is, even as hard as it is. Like when I discussed my abortion story, that was very hard knowing that I could get a lot of backlash from people who didn't agree with me. But you have to be able to be comfortable. And I don't regret anything I do or anything I say. I live my life very intentionally and I hope people can do the same. Thank you so much for for coming, for joining me. Yeah, you're probably the closest person to a celebrity that I've ever gotten to meet and to talk to one-on-one. That is so... I'm meeting one of my idols. Thank you. Oh my gosh. And I, I love the podcast. It's so freaking good. And I'm so excited for people to get to to hear it. And I'll be dropping some of those episodes that you uh, that you noted for me in episode notes so that people can go and hear more of your story and hear you talk about more of these things in, in depth. It's beautiful work that you're doing. And I, I'm really excited for everyone to, to hear it. So thank you so much. And yeah, I have, and we're on a little bit of a lull for the summer just because it's been hard with the move and figuring out times, but I have a lot yeah. more scheduled. Like I'm already editing another one. I'm in the process. And by the time this is released, there will hopefully be a lot more on there. Fantastic. For awesome. Love it. All right. And thank you so much. Yeah. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. Please check episode notes. There you will find links to Emmy's podcast and social media. You'll also find links to specific episodes of Motherful, where Emmy shares more of her story. I encourage everyone to go listen and go show her some love. Go click follow and click that subscribe button on Spotify. It costs you nothing and makes a huge difference for podcasters. The season four Letters for a Fire project is receiving submissions till the end of the year. Listeners are welcome to write a letter to their rapist or abuser, and I will read it during a special episode at the end of season four. If you'd like to learn more, you can listen to season three's Letters for the Fire episode and read the blog entry on the website to learn more about how to submit your letter and participate in the project. A huge shout out to my Patreon members, who make this whole dang shebangerang possible. Sadanka, Emerald, Kathleen, Betty, Sharanya, and Ashley. Thank you all so much. You all keep me and the podcast going, and your presence and support means more to me than I could ever possibly say. I am currently fundraising to afford a Descript subscription in order to make Finding Okay more accessible to the deaf, hearing impaired, and neurodivergent communities by providing transcripts for episodes. This is the next big step for Finding Okay, and it will help me reach more survivors who are seeking support. Any and all help is appreciated. 
Come find me on Twitch for live streams and podcast Q&A sessions where you can ask me anything. Become a Patreon member at various tiers to support the podcast and to gain access to bonus picks, audio, sneak peeks, and occasional early access and video episodes. This episode is a perfect example. I'll be sharing this episode with my Patreon members in September, and it won't be aired for other listeners until November. And the video of this episode with Emmy is available to Tier 3 members. Please visit the podcast website, www.finding-ok.com. It's where you can find all the links to my social media. It's where you can learn more about me and all my guests. It's where you can read reviews, leave reviews, contact me. It's also where you can find links to donate. Finding OK is crowdfunded. It is listener support that is keeping the podcast alive. If only a handful of the people who listened to each episode donated one or two dollars, the podcast would be fully funded. If you can't afford to donate or become a member on Patreon, one of the best ways that you can support the show is by reviewing and sharing online or by word of mouth. Thank you again for listening. This has been Finding Okay. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself. Your heart is a muscle the size of your fist. Keep on loving, keep on fighting, and hold on, and hold on. Hold on for your life. Your heart is a muscle.